Welcome to the Greenwood. I'm your host, Thaddeus Papke, and this is the podcast where we peek under the hood of the most famous outlaw who may have never been. We interview subject matter experts and content creators to learn why this figure continues to endure and consider what we can learn by examining what historian Maurice Keene called the matter of the Greenwood. One of the consistent truths regarding Robin Hood is that his stories will be adapted into just about any form of media you can imagine. The oldest existing stories we have come from ballads that were written down in the 1400s, but were certainly based on earlier oral traditions. We also have fragments of Robin Hood plays from around that time as well. Robin Hood was present for the birth of the historical novel being a central figure in both Ivanhoe and Maid Marian from 1819 and 1822. The 1800s would further see Robin Hood-themed operas, and, as I mentioned in episode 12, the burgeoning board game industry embraced the outlaw of Sherwood Forest. As new technologies were introduced, such as radio, film, television, and video games, stories featuring Robin Hood were quick to follow. I mention all this because my guest today, Jeff Messer, has been mastering the art of adapting Robin Hood over two very different mediums. He has already had great success with his stage plays featuring Robin Hood, and as of this recording, is currently running a Kickstarter for the second volume in his series of Robin Hood graphic novels. Over the course of our discussion, we'll get at some of the distinct ways in which writing and producing a theatrical production varies from the collaborative comic book creating that he's been doing now. And we'll, of course, tease out a few details about what we can expect to see from this take on Robin Hood that sounds both interesting and new, while not departing too far from the familiar. And make sure to watch your toes, as Jeff will be dropping some names as he discusses the involvement of some big-name comic book professionals that are collaborating with the project. One creator's name in particular is likely to be familiar to anyone who is a fan of a particular green-clad, bow-wielding comic book character. As a special bonus, at the end of the interview, Jeff will reveal how listeners to this podcast can get an exclusive Kickstarter reward. Now string your bow, draw your blade, and perhaps pull a few back issues out of your long boxes as we enter the Greenwood with writer Jeff Messer. Uh, to, just to, to help get us started on the right foot, I want to make sure that we get your, your name pronounced right. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jeff Messer is the name. All right. It's uh, it it sounds like it's spelled pretty pretty easy. Good. Uh, always always good to to check. Yes. A moment ago, we were discussing you know living through this time of the pandemic, and one of the things that I've noticed is that there are a lot of people's projects being born out of the pandemic that are yes. Robin Hood related. <laughs> I know. Time for another hero. Like you know, it's, it's, certain things are cyclical. I, I think, and people go, "Man, we, we could use a little bit of that," you know, in our world and our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a very heroic figure that's also from a time that is decidedly not this time has yes. just that kind of right element of escapism uh, for us. Yeah, and, and a certain amount of kind of upstanding uh, do-gooder. For, forsaking maybe his own, depending on which angle you take on the legend, you know, forsaking his own, you know, wealth and comfort to uh, to side with the common person. Um, you know, it's a, it's a theme that, that t- tends to be evergreen, if I can use that term, which is perfectly fitting with Robin Hood, I suppose. Yes, evergreen in the Greenwood. Before we get uh, too much into it, let's uh, define for the listeners what your Robin Hood project is. Robin Hood, the legend of Sherwood. Yes, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. It, it started, uh, it started a millennium ago, <laughs> actually it started in the late nineties. Uh, and, uh, I was involved heavily in theater in my, my twenties and met a lot of interesting people. And another, another fellow I worked with a guy named Robert Akers, uh, he and I, he was more of a musician and I was more of a playwright. We kept saying, oh, we need to find something that we can work on together. And one of the things we found that we, we had a common love for was, you know, Robin Hood's classic kind of storytelling. Uh, you know, we also come from the same generation of having seen Star Wars and movie theaters for the first time as kids. And, you know, so there's a certain type of storytelling that we were both really drawn to. And we, uh, at some point, we just stumbled into it and was like, let's write it, let's write a play together. Let's write a, a musical play together. Uh, what, what do we like that we have in common that's never been done as a musical? And we were like, oh man, Robin Hood, you know, has never been done as a big, you know, Broadway style, flashy musical. And of course, we had grand aspirations at that point in time. It's like, <laughs> oh, we're going to write the next Tony winning, whatever. And uh, we were like, man, that's, that's crazy. Why has that never been done? And uh, the two of us started sitting down and plotting out the script. And we very quickly, at uh, some point in the early first scene of planning, we realized why it's never been done because, well, you, you, you can't really fire arrows on stage <laughs> safely at any rate. Uh, and we were like, oh, okay, maybe that explains a lot. But we, we kind of came up with some theatrical ways to, to sort of cheat around it. And uh, I'm happy to say the play was produced. It was hugely successful in the year 2000. And it's been produced a bunch since uh, at different theaters, but it's a big, it's like, it's like doing on stage in a theater, uh, the equivalent of the Indiana Jones, uh, Indiana Jones stunt show from, from, you know, Disney, where it's like, oh, this is a big, you know, you 10 guys on stage swinging swords at the same time and lots of, you know, falls and you know, a very physical kind of show. Um, but we worked with some great stunt coordinator type people early on and, and turned it into this, this spectacular kind of event. And it was, uh, it was very well received. And he and I had so much fun, uh, Robert and I, that we were like, let's, let's keep writing. Let's write more of these. Let's kind of keep going uh, past the, the point where we left off with the character. And we conceived of a whole universe that takes it from the beginning of the legend to the end of the legend. 
and uh, and set about to write it. We we had some trouble, you know, getting other theaters to take it on because a lot of theaters would read it. We would send it to these big uh, these big Shakespeare festivals, these big outdoor Shakespeare companies, because we thought, hey, they've got the volume of people and they've got the tech and the, the ability to produce it. And invariably they would all come back and go, whoa, this is just going to be too expensive. This is going to be really, really pricey to do. And we did the first one on a shoestring. We worked with a regional theater that we had both worked in for years and years and kind of uh, blackmailed our way into them producing the show for us. And, and it turned into a huge hit for them. Uh, it was so much so that on opening night, they asked us to extend the production by another weekend because the pre-sale of the tickets was so overwhelming that by the end of the first weekend, it would have been sold out for the entire run. And, you know, to me, I, I always thought, and, and I still hold true to this, you, you don't have to do anything to sell Robin Hood to an audience. You know, you can name plays, you can name a season of plays, and the audience, they're, they're pretty ignorant of what most show titles mean. They look at a, a a play title and I don't know what it is. Was it written by Neil Simon? Yeah, okay, I, I'm on board with it or something like that. But if it's been a movie or if it's been something big, I mean, if you announced uh, and and the same season that they did Robin Hood, they did The Sound of the Music. Boom, you know, two blockbusters uh, back to back practically. And uh, if the audience has seen the movie version of it, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or, or what have you, or you can do any number of Sherlock Holmes or Dracula or but Robin Hood was one of those names that's like we had to do zero to sell the audience because the audience doesn't go. So what is this about? Right. Uh, they, we all know it. It's in our blood somewhere, you know, in our DNA. I think kids today are born already knowing Darth Vader's I am your father line. They, they come out of the womb and it's already it's like it's implanted in their DNA because it's become such a cultural staple over the past 40 years. And it's like, you know, how, how you look at the kids and go, how did you know that? They seem to already know it. It's like Robin Hood is another one of those things where they just automatically seem to, everybody knows who Robin Hood is and they kind of know it, roughly what the gist of it is. You know, Robin's yeah. from the rich, gives to the poor, you know, that sort of thing. You know, yeah. depending on how you, how you do it, you know, it could be successful. We've, uh, we've seen plenty of movies and, and other versions of it in recent times that have, colored way outside the lines and and they're never successful it's always interesting to me that the things that are the most successful are the ones that go no go back to the heart of it. what is it really about and that's what we made the play you know about it was like let's let's do it do you know uh, a little bit of that errol flynn spin to it but also keep it historically accurate uh really set it in that time period but not make it too gloomy don't make it silly make it fun, uh, make it an adventure. It's a gigantic adventure, uh, a la the, the first Star Wars movie. I want people who read or see our, our Robin Hood to go, oh, it feels like it's cut from that same bolt of fabric. And yeah. that was always our goal. And that's kind of where we stuck to it. And long story short, too late, but long story short, a number of years ago, we started talking about doing a comic book because they're like, this is a good way to kind of make that jump into a different medium and, and maybe get the attention of film and TV. I don't know. We'll see how that, that pans out. But um, before the pandemic, a big outdoor Shakespeare theater did uh, the first, first play and the second play, because we've written three at this point. And uh, they have, in their 50 years of existence, broke all of their attendance box office records. Oh, nice. Two summers back to back with two Robin Hood shows. And we walked away from that going, let's, let's do a comic book. Let's do a graphic novel. 
And we met, I uh, met via the internet, the artist, Chris Geary, who is a guy who lives 30 minutes away from Sherwood Forest. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is authentic because a couple of American dudes telling a Robin Hood story might not sit so well. Uh, but here was a real Brit who uh, his art was perfect for it. So we teamed up with him. And the pan- when the pandemic hit, we had just started. And, you know, instead of going slow, we decided, nope, let's, let's pedal to the metal. We're all stuck at home for the mm-hmm. next four months. Let's get the first book done and then let's throw a Kickstarter up there and, and see what happens. And, uh, and the rest is, uh, is history. Sort of. <laughs> so we'll, we'll touch on the current Kickstarter in just a moment with volume two. So yes. you had the, the first volume and uh, had a successful Kickstarter. Uh, did you publish that independently? Did you have that published? Uh, we did. We, we did it ourselves. You know, Kickstarter is this great sort of leveling agent for for creative people in the comic book world where, you know, if you if you have enough organizational skills and enough patience, you can kind of do it yourself and, and make it work. Uh, the beauty of this whole thing is that after we did it, within six months, we had a publisher in the UK approached us about putting it out over there. So we do have a, a publishing deal with a, a company called Shift. Uh, they do a, an anthology book that's in all the shops and everything called Shift Presents. And it's kind of a fun thing. And that's where Chris uh, Gary, the artist, had done some features for them. And so the publisher was kind of nosing around going, hey, you know, what, what are you working on right now? And he pointed him in the direction of Robin Hood. And the publisher was just over the moon for it. Thought, hey, we want to we want to bring this to the British audiences, the European audiences. And so we thought, why not? So, so we did it ourselves here and uh, it's being picked up and published in the UK by, by Shift. If uh, somebody was interested in checking out the first volume, uh, where, where could they find it? Yes, uh, social media has become, and I, I consider Kickstarter kind of social media too, uh, because mm-hmm. of just the way that it works. But we have a, a Facebook page. It's called uh, Robin, uh, Robin Hood Comic Book Adventures is the Facebook page. Okay. And if people go there, they can kind of follow along. You know, the design of Kickstarter is such that, you know, when you do the second book in a series or the third or the fourth or ever, how many books in you, you are, uh, they always sort of advise, be sure and offer all of them. <laughs> you know, don't just go, this is issue three. You missed issues one and two too bad so sad sorry no 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 they're like nope make everything available in perpetuity uh every time you do a kickstarter so the new campaign is a campaign for volumes one and two and happy to say we've had 50 or 60 people who uh missed the first one who have jumped in and are getting the first and the second volumes now and and, you know that's that's the idea is you kind of grow the audience with every campaign and you, you find people go oh man i hate that i missed that then they see it come back around and they jump in. So you, you can get it through the Kickstarter. Uh, we're in the process of figuring out how this, this deal with uh, the publisher in the UK works as to how far and wide we want to, to do things before they put out volume one over there. But fans anywhere in the world can get volumes one and volume two in the new Kickstarter. Um, yeah, I'm. I am amongst those that are uh, backing the current Kickstarter. Oh, uh, that's so first one, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting both of the volumes that way. I, I am always so because I've become a huge Kickstarter supporter myself, and I always go on. I, I mean, I'm on Kickstarter every day, just kind of seeing what other people are doing, 
uh, trying to help other creators. There's a nice community that gets gets built out of that. And I'm always just so annoyed when I, I see something and I go, oh my gosh, that looks great. And I click on it and it ended yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how? How did I miss this? And so I wind up following or reaching out to the person and, you know, tuning in for the next one. So it's, it is frustrating because I've, I've missed out on several. I would have backed that if I'd only known. So the algorithms are not our friends sometimes. So each, each volume is a fully illustrated graphic novel, just to make sure that the listeners are are aware. And and we'll certainly throw up links to both the Facebook page and to the Kickstarter page and recommend everybody will go and click on those and check them out. And they can see some samples of the art, um, fully illustrated by, by Chris Gary. Um, and, uh, the art style is lovely. It looks like he does some really creative shots, lots of, lots of interesting, uh, dynamic action that I've seen. It's uh, very cinematic. I, I, I fell in love with this stuff. Uh, the first book we did, uh, the first book we were looking at it and just accidentally the first handful of pages were all two page spreads, very cinematic. You know, it picks mm-hmm. up at the end of the, the Crusades and, and kind of the adventure starts there. And there was a moment that I was just like, man, Chris, you could you do every spread as a two-page spread like everything is so big and cinematic and, and ultimately we couldn't because of the way the story breaks in certain places but there are a lot of big two-page spreads and you know his his artwork is is a little old-fashioned like he's got this old soul as far as the comic book artist uh, style goes so it doesn't look overly modernized uh so there's a classic feel to it that i just took to right away i i felt like when i saw some of his work i really i it evoked like Alex Toth or even some early Frank Miller, if you will. Like other people have looked at it and sort of seen it or, or Mike Mignola or things like that. Like early 80s work from some of those those creators. Yeah. And, and it has a, a kind of a, a little bit of that kind of late bronze, early modern kind of yes. style. Which is books a little bit less. My bread and butter. I love that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, but he's not the only uh, artist you're you're working with. You have a couple other talented artists right. who are doing variant covers and the like for you. Yeah, yeah. The um, and I should mention their color artist uh, Gareth Audie is his name. He and Chris work together a lot. They're both Brits, uh, so he's doing all of the color work for us. But uh, the first time around, we had uh, two variant covers from some artists, some names that people might recognize. Uh, Trevor Von Eden did a, a variant cover for issue number one, which oh, was uh, reminiscent. I, I'll have to send you, uh, I'll send you some images. You'll love it. It's, I met him at a con and he was such a sweet guy. And then I emailed him and, and reached out to him and I said, Hey, would you do a, a Robin Hood cover? And we talked about the idea and he, and I was hinting at what he wound up suggesting, which was aping his Green Arrow miniseries number one cover, mm-hmm. which has you know the Green Arrow with the bow and people like shooting at him. Instead of he did it with swords, and he's like it looks like he's firing multiple arrows like rapid fire. It's very fun kind of cover. And uh, Bo Hampton did uh, a cover for us for volume one. For volume two, I actually ran into Bo Hampton at a, at a Comic Con back at the end of April, and, and sort of were like hey do I know you and I'm like well yeah I'm the guy that, that you did the cover for and we became really good friends during the the weekend at the con and then by the time it was over I said you want to do another cover and he said yes so he's got one that's up on the kickstarter now uh, Christopher Shank is uh, doing another one and I, I picked him because I really like his art but he also did a 
a Robin Hood miniseries in the early 90s for Eclipse Comics. And so it's kind of a, a little bit of a throwback there. So yeah. we've got that. Uh, we've got a couple of pinup pieces from uh, comic artist Ron Randall, who I've become friends with. He's a huge Kickstarter guy. Uh, Bob Hall, who did a lot of work for Marvel in the 80s, uh, West Coast Avengers and whatnot, met him at conventions and, and he was just a great guy to, to kind of bring on board and he's doing a pinup for us and um, I'm you know I'm, I'm going to name drop uh, big time here. But, but, I was, uh, was going to ask <laughs> about this name drop anyway since I saw it on the resume. Well um, when I was a kid my favorite comic book artist was the first comic book artist I ever saw in a comic when it was uh, Mike Grell you know who was kind of an icon of the industry coming up on 50 years in the comic biz. And I met him about a dozen or so years ago and corresponded with him via email for a couple of years. And then in 2015, he and I hung out at a convention where the number of people at the convention tables outnumbered the number of people attending the convention. Ooh. And uh, yeah, it was one of those, uh, the week before Christmas uh, in 2015. And we, we all just, I, I was there working with him. He asked me, uh, his wife couldn't come to the convention with him. And uh, it was an hour away from where I lived. And so he emailed me and said, hey, do you want to come over and hang out and help me run the table? You know, expecting crowds and, you know, swarms of people and none of which ever came about. But uh, we spent the entire weekend just sort of hanging out and um, formed a personal friendship and a bond and have been really close ever since. I convinced him to give Kickstarter a try in 2018, 2019. And he um, reluctantly was like, okay, let's give it a try with some of his projects. And it turned into a huge success. And it gave me the courage to actually do some of my own because I was like, hey, this, this is kind of cool if this works out. And so that's where I got into this. So I do a project with Mike Rell and then I do a project of my own and then I kind of rotate, if you will. And so we've been doing that ever since. So all through the all through the pandemic, uh, but also the other the other kind of interesting thing is that in 2027, late 2017, I got asked to help write a book about Mike because the publisher knew that I was close with him and I was looking for some freelance writing work. And they were like, hey, let's hook you up with this other writer and you guys can write a book about Mike Grell. And the weird thing about that is that it accidentally got nominated. I don't say accidentally, but it got nominated <laughs> for an Eisner Award in uh, in 2019. Mm -hmm. And congratulations! Uh, oh, thank you so much. I, it was weird. I was sitting at home and I was logged onto my computer, and a little Facebook Messenger popped up from somebody I knew who was, uh, you know, comic book adjacent, and he was like, "Hey, congrats on the Eisner nomination!" And I sat there for a full 10 minutes, going, how, "What? How?" <laughs> How do I respond to this? I I, I think he's mistaken. That makes no sense. I I haven't done anything that would even be on the Eisner radar. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I wrote. I helped write that book. And so I googled, and they had just announced the the nominations. And I scrolled down the page, and I was like, oh no wonder I missed a phone call from the other writer like a few hours ago that I hadn't gotten back. It's like he got the heads up about it, and then suddenly we were we were nominated, and we went to. Uh, to San Diego Comic-Con in 2019, the last time they had one before the pandemic. And we did not win, but uh, the cliche of uh, it being nominated is, is just as great as, you mm -hmm. know, you, when we hear that, right? You hear actors at the Oscars yeah, going, it's just an honor to just be nominated. nominated. <laughs> and you go, oh, come on. Oh, come on. 
But I got to tell you, sitting in that room for the awards ceremony, yeah, I, it didn't matter to, to either of us whether we won or not. It was just like, holy crap, we're here. And I left San Diego determined to, you know, as I was approaching my 50s, I'm like, uh, I've got a big sign in front of me saying, maybe you should pursue this, this thing that you were always afraid to pursue when you were younger, writing comics, working in comics, doing stuff in comics. Maybe this is a sign that you should be doing that. And so that's, I dedicated myself to that ever since. And then the world closed down and gave me four months to work out of my bunker. So uh, just for the sake of the audience members who aren't comic book fans, you, you mentioned a yes. number of, of big name artists and creators who worked for some really big name, popular uh, comic book uh, companies. Yeah. Uh, Mike Grell being one of the most uh, famous of them, of course. And he's got a resume that goes back for, for decades, as you said, like 50 years. Almost next year will be his 50th year of comics. Let's see. I, I know he has a, a few creator-owned characters and uh, is famous for working on the Legion of Superheroes in the 70s, for creating right. the uh, character The Warlord, uh, for which yes. both the artist and the writer. And, um, and and which was, was a bit of a revolutionary thing at the time. Like most books didn't allow the writer to also draw it so he kind of he was kind of a a barrier breaker in the 70s but yeah. yes and then he went on and did creator own projects in the 80s and then came back to green arrow at dc comics right and that's that's a, a relevant robin hood connection is that one of the works yes. that he's best remembered for is a very iconic run on the green arrow comics a uh, mature adults run on the character of Green Arrow. Uh, so this classic superhero who had been around from the 50s, very right. always a Robin Hood inspired character, um, had been sort of like a, a cross between Batman and Robin Hood for the first few decades of his comic right. escapades. But then uh, Mike Grell took him and really, you know, didn't exactly take him out of the DC Comics universe but really focused on a very no frills, not mm. alien invasions, urban vigilante, but yeah. upped up, up the kind of Robin Hood appearance to him. Uh, he's got, you know, the very green hood, very leaning into the Robin Hood elements uh, while also playing up that uh, very Robin Hood story, but he's in the streets of Seattle instead of out in Sherwood Forest. Well, and the, the beauty of it, too, was that, you know, he took a comic book character that was pretty goofy uh, for a lot of his career and kind of made it into this. Well, how would this work in the real world if, if there really was a guy like the, the plausibility of what he did with Green Arrow was there could legitimately be much like the Robin Hood myth itself. Nobody knows if it's true or if it isn't true. There's lots of you know speculation, lots of mystery behind it. But this could really happen in the real world. There could be a vigilante dressed as Robin Hood running around firing arrows. And uh, now if that happens, then I'm going to throw a disclaimer out there. I did not, uh, I did not try to inspire anyone to do that. But I think at the same time that the world, people go, hey, it would be kind of refreshing to see some dude who was truly kind of committing to that Robin Hood attitude. Yeah. And, and I think Grell tapped into that in the in mid to late eighties when he came back and, and did the, uh, the, the revitalization of Green Arrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a, as I said, a very iconic series, very well-remembered. 
most of the volumes for, for that have been collected and can be found. The first one, if anybody wants to, to look it up, that kind of launched that series is called The Longbow Hunters. And again, that was Mike doing both the art and the writing. Yes, beautiful, beautifully done book too. Yeah. And very mature, very, again, very mature. Like uh, it was, it, it really tagged into that uh, mid eighties shift in comics that happened when it was like, oh, we can tell darker, more mature stories. And, you know, mm -hmm. you had your Frank Miller's and your Mike Rell's and your Howard Jenkins and people like that who were like, yes, please. And they just sort of open arm embraced the idea and did some of their best work. It is, it's definitely a dark, darker take and a more mature take. It's not uh, silly and campy. One of the things I do appreciate about that work is that uh, the hero, Oliver Queen, uh, that modern readers might know better from the Arrow series, yes. uh, television series, uh, he's still a very heroic figure. You know, he yeah. is still somebody who is wanting to do good in the world um, and was inspired to do good by a childhood love of Robin Hood. Exactly. You know, what are you going to do if you're a fan of Robin Hood and you get stuck on a, a tropical island and have to figure out a way to survive? Well, you make bows and arrows. You know, I was a kid growing up. I got get sticks that were bent and I would go, oh, give me some string. I'm going to mm -hmm. make an arrow, bow and arrow out of this. Never yep. worked, but you know. <laughs> uh, so um, Mike Grell uh, is uh, providing some art for some some prints for the Kickstarter. Is that right? That's something you can get as yes. a reward. Uh, yes, yes. In fact, um, when we did the the first uh, the first play in 2018 at this uh, outdoor Shakespeare company, we uh, we came upon this idea of let's let's raise money for local charities while the production's going on mm -hmm. uh, and how could we do sure. that could we you know what could we sell what could we do and I, I talked to Mike at some point and I said hey you know I'd, I'd love to commission you to do a, a Robin Hood piece that we could do as a poster put the logo on for the, the play and do the whole thing and um, and then we'll make some prints and we'll we'll sell them for like you know 10 bucks a piece at the play and raise money for for local charities and uh, he he thought it was a great idea and suddenly he turned in this fully painted image. Like he got started on this, this drawing and he just sort of kept going and going and going and going. And he fully painted the thing and uh, sent it to me. And I was just sort of blown away by it. And we made the prints and we sold them and we raised almost $3,000 for uh, local charities during the run of the show, just by selling those posters to the audience. And uh, it was it was just really kind of a, a cool thing, a perfectly Robin Hoody kind of thing to do, and it was great. Uh, he even came to town and uh, did a comic book store signing, and came by and watched rehearsals for the play, and got to meet the actors, and so it was really interesting to have my worlds colliding like that, and a lot of fun. But uh, after that, when we did the first Robin Hood Kickstarter, and it was successful, I reached out to him again, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'd like to get you to do a couple of couple more Robin Hood pieces for me." Um, and he did two. He did one that was like a, a head bust uh, kind of uh, view of Robin Hood, and the other is more of a you know storybook cover kind of image, very very heroic Robin Hoody image. Yeah. And um, and I gave one of those uh, originals to my my collaborator Robert Akers, like as a as a birthday present. I said, here, I got Mike to do a piece for you. And then we've got those on there uh, as well on, on the Kickstarter. So yeah, my, Mike never shies away from drawing Robin Hood when you ask him to. <laughs> you can tell. 
he he totally digs it. like he's he's still that kid tarzan robin hood all that stuff he is still he's all he'll be 75 years old in september but he's still got that that kid at heart thing going that's one and, and yes and people can get people can get those on the on the kickstarter as well the only place they can get them in fact is on the kickstarter I'll have to say that was actually the hardest thing for me when it came to backing the Kickstarter was <laughs> to figure out which level I wanted to support because there are so many really good uh, reward offerings there in terms of having these variant covers that are being presented in terms of these art prints by your you know talented team of, of uh, artists who are, are working on the variant covers and the art prints and trying to figure out like, ooh, what is the combination of these that most appeals to me? And also, you know, certainly making sure that I get the, the graphic novels themselves. Uh, speaking of both the Kickstarter though, and uh, charity, yes. there is a charity uh, connection uh, with the Kickstarter uh, comic books for kids. And so yes. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that involvement. Absolutely. Uh, it's another relationship that, that we started before the pandemic. Everything in our lives now is going to be, well, before the pandemic and after the pandemic, and this and yeah. that. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those things. Uh, the guy who runs comic book for comic book books for kids and I, God, we we had a, a two hour phone conversation one day just about different kinds of things. He, he had wanted he did. A, he does a coloring book uh, for children's hospitals and he wanted uh, to get a, a Mike Grell piece donated. And so uh, I asked Mike, I said, hey, you know, well, how about if we just do the black and white version of your Robin Hood theater poster in the coloring book uh, as, you know, something that they could offer? And he was agreeable to that. And so we, we did that. And um, as, a, as a trial balloon of can we do this on Kickstarter, we did a, a young Robin Hood comic book. Uh, mm -hmm. we had written a few plays, a uh, theater that had produced the show years ago had asked us, do you have any kids versions of some of this stuff? And so Robert and I over a weekend sat down and wrote a couple of one act, you know, teenage Robin Hood learning the lessons of life and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we met a local artist, a young artist with a kind of a, a cartoony anime style that sort of suited it. And so we did a, a young Robin Hood comic. And uh, the idea was, hey, we'll send these to children's hospitals. We'll send, you know, hundreds of these to schools, whatever, you know, we print. We'll, we'll make sure to add, add this component because it just felt like the right thing to do is to find something charitable to hook into. And then, of course, again, you know, the, the pandemic happened. And so the idea of sending comics to, to hospitals and the idea of sending comics to schools, which were being done via zoom and, and whatnot uh the brakes kind of got put on that and, and so we were just coming out of this era where you know we still have a lot of those books ready to go to send to these organizations to these schools and we have given tons to teachers we've sent some to schools people have asked hey you know can we get some copies and, and uh so far we've given away several hundred copies of the books but we want to do more we just haven't had the chance to do it yet because the, the limitations of the past couple of years. So we're very excited to be doing it now, you know, fully committed to the idea of shipping a crate of books off to comic books for kids and having them distribute them throughout to cancer wards and to other places, uh, children's hospitals around the country. Very important to us and something that every time we do one of these, we're going to include that as, as part of what we're doing. 
Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, in addition to the entertainment component uh, associated with this, there's you know some good heroic lessons that one one gets from reading Robin Hood stories. Some, some a bit of, of moral uh, fortitude that that uh, might uh, bolster us. But there's also uh, an educational component that you're including. Yes. 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 Uh, happily, we did a, a like just a one page thing. We didn't want to overwhelm people. But in the young Robin Hood, we did just a one page of relevant things around the history, the time frame of Robin Hood, what it was like to be living during that era and so forth. And uh, in the, the main Robin Hood book as well, we're keeping that going a little more, you know, moving it up to a slightly older audience. Um, there's a, a certain amount of, of historical perspective that can get lost easily. The last Robin Hood movie that came out seemed to be all over the place as to where it was in history. It's like, wait a minute, this doesn't <laughs> look like it's in the right time or place. Uh, this doesn't make sense. And, uh, and so uh, Alan Wright, who uh, runs the boldoutlaw.com website, he was one of the first guys back in the late ni- 1999 when we wrote the play yeah, his website was just barely up and functioning. We sent him a copy of the play, like, "Hey, you know, you're one of the only people on the planet with a Robin Hood website. Here, look at the, look at our play." He's still one of the only people, and it's still running. Yeah, and it's still running, and it's still getting so much, so much better. He he's done so much with it. What a dedicated life that is. Uh, but he's a super great guy, and so we reached out to him for the first Robin Hood book and said, "You know, hey, would you write a one page ish?" historical perspective on what's happening in and around the, the story that's happening in the book. And he obliged and it's, it's a great, great little addition that we include in, in the books now is a little bit of a, a historical essay, I guess you would call it mm-hmm. uh, from, from a guy that we say is one of the foremost uh, authorities on the subject of Robin Hood, uh, whether he likes it or not. If you've been around 23 years doing a website, you're, you're a, official, I think. Yeah, and he's still very plugged into Robin Hood scholarship. Yeah. Yes. So we're super happy to have him on board because uh, the first time we sent him our play script, he I think he liked it, but he didn't like it that much because the first draft had a few problems. <laughs> so so we're happy now that, that all is forgiven because we, we fixed all the problems and it's much better. So speaking of the, the historical aspects, how important was that to you and uh, your collaborators uh, in terms of getting that sense of authenticity on the page? It was, it was very important. You know, and again, you could go really dark with it, which I think some, some people have tried over the years uh, because obviously not a, not a happy time to be alive for a lot of people uh, during that era. And you could easily go too fanciful in the other direction with, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, the merry men, the men in tights kind of, kind of thing. And it's like, that doesn't, doesn't seem authentic. So we, we tried to strike a balance. We wanted to feel more Errol Flynnish, more swashbuckly, but also keep it grounded in the, the period of, of time that it takes place. That period of time, is, is this the 1190s while Richard is at yes. the Yes, yeah. Yeah, the 1190s. That you know, and to me, there's a, a richness around King Richard and Prince John and all of that, all of that nonsense with that family. Uh, and having been a theater guy, I, I once upon a time, years ago, 30 years ago, I played uh, Jeffrey in The Lion in Winter, which oh, is the middle wow. brother that 
that nobody cares about. Because he died before the Robin Hood stories take place. He died before. Yes. Yeah. And he was kind of the instigator of Prince John. Like, hey, go do this and get in trouble. Uh, So it was a lot of fun. So, I, you know, having done that that play, I I fell in love with that period of of history and did tons of research. And when when, you know, you discover that Robin Hood sort of bumps into that very conveniently. If you go with that Mm -hmm. uh, particular construct of Robin Hood. Uh, I thought, well, gosh, I already know enough of this history, and and there's a lot of fun to be had uh, around that time. The Crusades, for for better or for worse, kind of you know, in hindsight, you look back and go, well, that was a pretty ugly time, and how how you know how would that affect someone from from a perspective of you go into something thinking this is a noble, just cause, and then you see it up close and you go, eh, maybe not. Yeah, and we thought that's an interesting thing to bring to robin hood that doesn't necessarily get focused on very much like the 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 crisis of conscience that he has to go through to decide he's going to use his particular skill set um that he's acquired as as a war veteran to lead a rebellion versus i'm just gonna go home and kick back and live the, live the easy life as i could choose to do and, and to, to me there there was a lot of you know, aspects and, and to Robert as well that we talked about as we were writing the play, where it's like, let's let's keep it grounded. Let's keep the focus on the character. And and one of the things that you always see that I think they go wrong with in some interpretations of Robin Hood is they they assume the audience already knows everything about the character. So they do very little character development. And we wanted to kind of go the other way. It's like, let's get to know why Will Scarlet is the way Will Scarlet is. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, we... We looked for more uh, female characters because, of course, in theater, it's easier to find women than men sometimes, um, especially in community type theater. So we, we expanded as much as we could on female characters. You know, we took uh, something from the Howard Pyle book, uh, Ellen, mm-hmm. uh, as Alan Adele's wife. And we're like, perfect. We'll be, you know, they're married. They're a couple and they have this existence that that fits that. Uh, there's a, a servant in the castle who's a spy. Uh, working with Robin Hood and his man, risking her life uh, to get them secrets. There, you know, is a younger woman in the camp who has, uh, you know, this sort of teenage infatuation with with Robin that kind of leads to some tension, if you will, between the characters. So there's lots of things that we kept trying to build out of that universe, and for the the sake of of the history, the history of it is to try not to make the, the the humor or the jokes or any of those things. And then there's humor, there is levity, of course, too hip and too modern. It's like, how do we keep it grounded? How do we keep it feeling as though it's authentic to the time period? But also, you know, again, that, and that's the struggle is don't, don't go too terribly dark with it. Keep it hopeful on top of everything else. There's uh, one, one aspect about the degree of authenticity that I'm looking forward to seeing how you uh, explore um, an area that is sort of antithetical to what you see presented in Howard Pyle, and that's the presence of the entire season of winter. Um, (laughs) Because in Howard Pyle, everything is the merry month of May. It's a a constant late spring that the characters live in. Um, But of course, being outlaws living in the forest, the winter is going to be an especially dangerous time. And that often gets glossed over in Robin Hood stories. But I understand it, it does a major component in this second volume of your series. 
It really is. And uh, what's what's fun about that is I when we were working on the first book, I saw Chris, uh, Chris Geary, the artist, posted something on his social media that was a winterscape scene that he did. And I just went, oh, my God, that's gorgeous. We got to do Robin Hood in winter, you know, and and of course, that suddenly made perfect sense. And so and, and if people look at the time, the actual time frame in history, there's a really narrow window that all of this adventure can happen in before King Richard returns, uh, historically speaking. And so once you, once you kind of say we're sticking to the actual chronology that is true to history, there's a little tight window to squeeze everything into. And so we have Robin returning in the late fall, in the autumn. And of course he, he kills the guy to save much from you know, the sheriff's men for poaching a deer. Uh, and as a result, he kind of makes this boastful claim about, you know, we're going to fight back and all of this stuff. And then winter sets it. Mm. And the first half of the second book, uh, the happy accident, I guess you could call it, uh, was, oh, wow, we can explore the, the lowest point possible for an uprising of people living in the woods, trying to trying to stay alive. And, and delve deeper into the character of, of Robin, who is, you know, he makes these bold claims. Oh, we're, we're going to strike back and it's going to be awesome kind of thing. And then suddenly the, the coldest, snowiest winter that any of them can remember just drops on them. And he spends those months trying to decide, can I, can, how stupid am I? Can I do this? And, you know, have I just made the biggest folly of my life? And he has an encounter with a family and with a, a wealthy estate owner whose, uh, whose son died in the Crusades. And that's where the, the moment of commitment that we came up with was that's where his decision to rob from the rich to give to the poor comes. He hit this lowest point possible. Now, haven't eaten in days, maybe weeks. Everybody's you know, malnourished and famished. And he goes out on his own to find help and thinking he's going to walk into the forest and basically die. He's, he's ultimately, he, he could as, as well as finding some help and finding some hope, he could very well just walk away and die. And then he finds this glimmer of hope again. And he makes the choice to steal from the rich to feed these people who are starving and it gives him enough energy. And, and Chris's art is so beautiful. There's a great two-page spread that shows winter turning into spring progressively as they're building up. It's like four, four vertical panels that work across the page, showing them building the camp, showing him teaching them how to fire arrows and how to sword fight. It's a little mo montage kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of my favorite things that we've done with the book. And none of that was in the play. Like this, the play is more of the, you know, the typical story. The comic is allowing us to paint between the, the scenes, if you will, and explore things that we weren't able to explore on stage. Forget about firing arrows on stage. Having a blizzard would have been just a nightmare, logistically. <laughs> right. uh, so we can do that in a comic. You know, we can explore those things in a comic and um, it, it's made it a better story as a result to go there, to go to those places and then find the hope for the characters to rise out of it. 
you can put your protagonists in a lot more danger when they're, you know, ink yeah. on a page instead of a real person. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We, we started the story in the Crusades, you know, before, you know, and it's like, you can't do that on stage, but we could do it on the page. And, and it was a lot of fun seeing it come to life and going, what, what makes this person who, who he is? What makes this person decide to become the, the leader of man, leader of, of, uh, of a rebellion of sorts? And exploring that as, as a writer is a lot more fun. Does the play have the same title, Robin Hood, Legend of Sherwood, or do you have a, is, did the play have a different title? It does, yeah. The, the original play, uh, and there are, uh, we've developed it now into four uh, full-length scripts, uh, three of which we've written. And uh, one of which may never get written because we'll just do it in comics and just keep going if this turns into a success. <clears throat> but the original play was Robin Hood, The Legend of Sherwood. Then when we wrote a, a second script, uh, we had to come up with another another kind of subtitle. It's like Robin Hood blank, whatever. Uh, you know, uh, so there was a Robin Hood Quest for Justice is the second script. And uh, The Outlaw Returns is the third script. And, and the way the scripts are constructed is the first two are the early part of the legend up to King Richard's return. And then there's like a 15 to 20 year gap. Mm -hmm. And then it gets you up to the point where you're close to the Magna Carta being signed. And, oh, all this, it ends on this high note of Richard coming back going, yes, we're back and England is awesome and you guys are great and everybody's gonna be happy again. And then, of course, history taught us that Richard basically went, yeah, it's too wet and cold here. I'm going to head back out. And yes, just, I'm going to France. He uh, <laughs> ditches them, and then King John becomes King John. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute. We didn't really. And this is something that, that people, uh, I was going to say American politics has taught us this lesson, but I think the world, uh, the world over, you kind of see this, where it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so we put this 20-year gap, almost 20-year gap in, in the story where, you know, they get older and they've learned to sort of live with the status quo to a certain point. And then the, the barons, as history, you know, shows us the barons, King John was so bad that even the rich people turned against him, which, by the way, that's, you know, the rest of the world should look to that. It's like <laughs> when, when, when that happens, uh, maybe we'll finally turn the page, right? When ExxonMobil storms the, the castle, we'll, we'll know that, uh, hey, we're going to win this war. But until then, it's like we just got to deal with it. Uh, hopefully, ExxonMobil doesn't sponsor the, the podcast. <laughs> or I hope I didn't ruin a sponsorship deal for you. Uh, but you know, no, you know the the idea that they've all become complacent and then they sort of get pulled at an older age back into this story around the time of the Magna Carta was a fun idea. And so we write to the end of the classic, you know, Robin <clears throat> dying in little John's arms and firing the arrow out the window, very Shakespearean ending. Um, mm. That's at the end of the final play. So it's two early and two later plays uh, that tell the whole story of Robin Hood. And eventually we hope to do all of that in the comic book form. Four, roughly four volumes a piece, 56 pages each, which is the Kickstarter. So the, the first two, um, you know, the first book is 56 pages. The second book is 56 pages. So they're double length uh, graphic novels, like big oversized graphic novels. Uh, it'll be four to tell this story. Uh, you know, once, once we get past that one, the next installment will be four more. And then, you know, if and when we get to that 15 year time jump, we'll do four and four. So it'll be, let's see how my math skills work out. So what is that, 16? Uh, that's, uh, that's a lot of Robin Hood. 
That is, but it's the idea is hopefully it'll be kind of a complete. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say no to it. I'll I'll be there. <laughs> no, and as long as people keep saying yeah, kind of supporting it, then you know we'll keep going uh, with it. And and you know, like I said, you know, we kind of created our own little universe inside of the Robin Hood mythos, uh, and to be able to tell that story from beginning all the way to the end feels really satisfying. I mean, we don't know what it's like because we haven't done it yet. But you know, when we do get there, it'll be really satisfying. I'm sure. So speaking of that, uh, your own uh, mythos that you're creating there, your own kind of Robin Hood world, who is your favorite member of the Merry Men to write? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, there are, uh, we created a buddy-buddy kind of relationship between Will Scarlet and Alan Adale that's a lot of fun to write. And by making Alan Adale a married man, and Will Scarlet just being the irascible kind of scoundrelly kind of guy. It, that's a fun dynamic. Those two are fun to write together. And, and the depth of sort of the, the supporting characters uh, is really the joy to write. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. It's like, oh yeah, Robin Hood, he speechifies. Robin Hood always says the right things, yada, yada, all that stuff. It, it can get a little, little dry at times because you kind of, there's certain things that as a character, functionally, he has to do. Right. And um, in the in the second play that we did, uh, because of that, uh, Will Scarlet and his poor temperament gets him into some predicaments that uh, that bring his character out to kind of the forefront of, of the story. Um, there's a sequence in the second play that's, that's kind of funny where Robin, they become so successful at what they're doing now. It's like a well-oiled machine. And quite often he, he shows up after the skirmish is over and he gets credit for it. So there's all this kind of like, oh, you know, uh, I, I don't have to do much now. It's like, we, you know, you guys all do the things and I get the credit for it sort of thing. And then so Will Scarlet goes a little rogue at one point and gets thrown in the dungeon and there's this grand escape that happens and, and so forth. So it, I think Will Scarlet's probably the most fun to write just because He's got a bad temper. He's got a pretty dark backstory that we delve into by the end of the first book, but he's definitely the darker side of, of the Robin Hood story as far as, you know, he would rather punch first and ask questions later. He doesn't want to speechify. He doesn't really want to deal with the nobility of it all or the high-mindedness, maybe the Robin Hood lofty kind of goals Will is just like, just, you know, show me who to fire an arrow at. Uh, yeah, I, I find a, you know, a good Robin Hood story. Robin Hood has to be very likable. He has to be very fun, you know, affable, merry, you know, somebody that you, you do enjoy seeing on the page or on the screen. But at the same time, he also always has to be the capital H hero. So that, that limits how much you can get away with having him do and say. Exactly. And so that was the fun in the second play. Like I said, we, we let Will Scarlet kind of run loose a little bit more than, than Robin Hood. And as a result, it was a ton of fun. Like, oh yeah, this guy's fun to write because, you know, he gets mouthier in a different way than Robin Hood does. Robin Hood's very eloquent and very, you know, he has a certain flair and certain flamboyance to him. And Will Scarlet is, you know, more of a blunt object. It's, uh, you know, who's kidding who? It's the Han Solo character. <laughs> Of the story, if we're going to go into into like modern parlance, uh, and everybody, you know, in the beginning, you're like Luke Skywalker's awesome, and in the second movie, you go, yeah, but Han Solo's cool. 
Yeah. <laughs> I remember I having that experience as a kid, being a young kid yep. watching Star Wars and loving Luke Skywalker. And then as I got older, being like, Han Solo is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. He is the cool dude. And the cool dude gets to gets to say the fun stuff sometimes. But yeah, there's there's a certain swagger that Robin has to have. But again, it's a, a stylish sort of swagger, you know. Mm-hmm. And you even mentioned Star Wars as as such an inspiration on the Kickstarter page. Yeah. 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 I, it's just very important. You know, I was when I was a kid, I, I saw it. I was seven years old. I saw it at a drive in movie theater. Uh, kids Google that. We'll see. Maybe. Oh, they made a bit of a comeback during the pandemic. Well, that's true. That is true. And so I've known this was cool all along. Uh, but um, but yeah, you know, I saw Star Wars and I and I grew up in a very rural kind of small town sort of community and you know, was into comic books and I was into, you know, all this make-believe stuff and always sort of being told, it's like, you know, hey, come back down to the ground, kid. You know, it's like you're, you're, your head's in the clouds and all this stuff. And so Star Wars spoke to me in a huge way. Again, that Luke Skywalker thing was like, I get it. I'm so dialed into this. And by the end of seeing that movie, I was, I, my, you know, and this is true. And I still have the copy of it. Um, no, no DVD, no VCR, no cable, no streaming, no, no nothing. You know, we had comic books and that was it. There was a comic book adaptation of Star Wars, but I saw the movie and I went home and I, I, I so wanted to hold on to that experience that I wrote my own adaptation of it over like the course of the next week with illustration. Now it's, it's horrible to look back and go, that's what I thought that was about. Wait a minute. You know, that like my interpretation of certain scenes of the movie are just completely wacko. Um, uh-huh. But I did it. And, and I, it was this weird exercise where by the time I was finished with it, I was like, I want to be a storyteller. That it, it cemented me in that in that that mode in my mind, and from that point forward, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell stories. And so, when Robert and I started working on Robin Hood, we both agreed the script writing has to feel like that first Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. It works for all audiences. It's it 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 tells a broad enough story, but there's enough kind of notes in between that it has heart and it has depth to it. So we kept that as our template. Was like, let's keep it on that that level. The original Star Wars movie, the way that it made you feel, we want to write a Robin Hood story that that makes the reader or the audience feel that way. And so we kept that as our goal, and, and very important to us. That we think we we hit the mark more often than not, but it's a it's a high bar to hit, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so Star Wars, of course, uh, is also. Uh, known for having an extremely memorable villain and you know for the contrast of my who was your favorite merry man to write uh, who was your favorite villain to write oh my gosh um we uh, as writers had so much fun the villains are always as an actor you know i played played jeffrey plantagenet the lion in winter he's such a scumbag <laughs> so much more fun to play than than just playing a hero he is not- um yes <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but but the the villains are so much more fun to write too. And so, um, the sheriff and Sir Guy of Gisborne, um, if there is comedy in the play, and and it's there, it's it's there, but it's so so black as far as the comedy goes because they're the villains. But they have this ultimate dysfunctional relationship, you know. And Sir Sir Guy of Gisborne 
and a lot of Robin Hood is is depicted as being, you know, this sort of ultimate kind of tough guy. We went the other way. Like, nope, he is a landed gentleman who has no business being in charge of anything military, but because the sheriff is trying to exploit his cousin's fortunes, has put him in charge. And so he is kind of incompetent. His second in command, uh, the character that we created called Cedric, is the guy who should be in charge. He's like the, mil- the cold-hearted, military kind of minded guy, but he has to follow this complete idiot in, into battle, which always leads to chaos. And so there's a lot of banter with Robin and the Merry Man and Sir Guy of Gisborne, because uh, he's a coward, he's a fool, he's all of those kind of tropes. And the scenes with, with uh, he and the sheriff are... Um, reminiscent and this is such a weird poll i know but there is one line of dialogue in the first play that is a direct homage to jackie gleason and uh and the guy playing his son in Smokey and the bandit and the relationship they have okay yeah is is the sheriff and guy of Gisborne. <laughs> in, in medieval time inspiration there but i <laughs> It's, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's just a weird thing. And, and, you know, and I remember writing this line, throwing it in, and I'm going, if anybody has seen Smokey and the Bandit recent to the time they see the play, they're going to go, hey, wait a minute, that line sounds vaguely familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to make things even more interesting is, uh, you know, certain guy of Gisborne is an idiot. The sheriff is a smarter idiot. The sheriff's wife is smarter than both of them. And so there's this whole pecking order. And we, so we have, um, we created a wife for the sheriff who has to, you know, because of her station, hide behind the drapes to overhear the conversations with Prince John and the sheriff. And then she comes out and basically says, well, this is what we have to do. She is pure evil. She is like Disney evil queen, prima donna kind of character. And so it's the dynamic of all of them because, you know, some of the scenes, Prince John, chews out the sheriff leaves the sheriff chews out sir guy of gisborne he he kicks him out and then the sheriff's wife comes out and gives it to him that's very so, <laughs> yes it is so much fun and audiences you know when you when you watch the play live the audiences get such a kick out of watching this power dynamic of three incompetent men all trying to blame each other and then one woman coming out and just smashing the, it all to pieces and putting them in their place uh, it's always fun. So riding the bad guys is fun. Uh, the, the sheriff in Gisborne is particularly fun, though, because there's just this absolute black comedy hatred in, in some of the relationships. So, and you get some of that in, in the second volume of, uh, of the Robin Hood book on the Kickstarter. You get to sort of see this experience. There's a, a running gag. And again, you know, certain elements of comedy. There's a running gag now. And it's, it was in the play. It was always a lot of fun is that every time Robin Hood robs from Sir Guy of Gisborne, he steals his clothes. (laughs) And so there's just this ongoing thing about it because his guy dresses like a dandy and he's got all these, you know, uh, know, rings and jewels and all of this stuff. So, of course, his clothes are valuable. So he he always gets his clothes stolen too. And it becomes a running joke throughout the the show or throughout the, the comic as well. So... But yeah, so that that would be the ones that are most fun to write. Um, yeah, that that sounds fun. I'm looking forward to to reading it. And 
uh, speaking of, of that, uh, when when am I likely to be able to? What what is the fulfillment <laughs> looking like for the Kickstarter? Well, we're super happy about this one. The the first one was hampered uh, significantly by shipping issues during the pandemic. Uh, the first book was published in early 2021, and then of course, instead of things getting better, it only got worse. Uh, and so. Uh, fulfillment was a little tricky at that point, but everything looks to be smooth sailing now. Um, Chris just turned in the final pages of the, the comic, so it's all done. And uh, Gareth is coloring it uh, even as we speak. Although it's, yeah, he's probably in bed because it's five hours earlier. Yeah, uh, it's right there, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but who knows, these artists, you know? Uh, but so we're, it's being colored now. Uh, Chris does his own lettering as he goes which is kind of brilliant so uh, he he's the artist and the letterer uh so it's already done you know you can read it in black and white uh but the entire book is finished once the kickstarter is over i imagine maybe a month to six weeks before we send it to the the printer after that so we we waited a little bit longer than we wanted to originally for the second volume and a lot of it had to do with the shipping and all the, the just kind of the post COVID crisis kind of stuff that was getting in the way. But also I thought, let's get the whole book done. So we're not really having to wait so that we can immediately jump on it and ship it out. So I would imagine everybody should have it in hand by uh, September, October. Okay. That's the goal before Christmas for sure. Uh, because of course uh, shift in the UK wants to put out volume one, Mm -hmm. in the uk by the end of the year and so we would we would rather uh us be working on volume three when volume one comes out over there so we can stay ahead and have a reasonable you know every six month release in the uk hopefully uh with, with the books there and the uk book uh just uh by the by has a, an exclusive variant cover or no, i guess it's the only cover in the uk uh but the uk cover from shift is by barry kitson Okay. Doing the art. So we've got a brand new cover on the, the UK book, which um, hopefully before this whole thing is over, we'll have included copies as part of certain bits and pieces of the new Kickstarter. Finalizing that right now in, in the final, you know, final week or so of the Kickstarter. So hopefully. Yes. Yeah, and, and you just posted uh, today, uh, for the date of this recording, the yes. pencils for the, the non-variant cover by Chris Carey. Yes, yes. Chris did the pencils. Um, he'll have the inks done uh, very quickly. Yesterday we spoke and, and he's, he told me the idea and I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. I love it. And then today he sent me the pencils. So I imagine the inks will be here tomorrow and uh, colors soon thereafter, but uh, the the concept of the the regular cover from Chris Geary, uh, I really love. We we tried in the first book. He had the idea of doing a a wraparound cover that was painted, and uh, and he did it, and and it was it was a really good like a, a classic sort of storybook fairy tale kind of illustration. It looked really really fantastic, but it just didn't feel right for the cover of the book. And so what we did, instead of saying, oh, no, we're going to scrap this beautiful piece of art, is we put it in the center, like as a centerpiece in the book. And Chris did a different cover uh, for us, ultimately, that was a little more dynamic, if you will. 
And uh, for this one, you know, we had talked about some ideas for the cover. The, this issue features the Robin Hood, Little John quarterstaff fight, big moment. Um, it also features a, a big Robin meeting Marion for the first time and a big fight that happens with the sheriff and all of this stuff. And we were trying to settle on what the cover could be. And, uh, and Chris really liked the idea of it being Robin flirting with Marion. And he, he, he did a couple of examples of it that were like wider shots. And they pulled in really close so you could only see them and see just the edges of what was happening around them. And he proposed the idea. He said, if the cover is this, it looks like this really nice romantic image. And the centerfold piece will be a double page spread that is a, a zoomed out version of this scene. And you see that all manner of mayhem and melee are going on around them while they're flirting. Mm -hmm. sword fighting you know and you know all, all of this stuff and, and very, I was like, that's kind of brilliant i love it so yeah it becomes a very literal you know them having only eyes for each other sort of moment exactly yeah and, they're they're lost in this tiny little moment meanwhile everybody is beating the snot out of each other around them so uh it's kind of fun it's it made me think i posted something earlier too it made me think i watched butch cassidy and the sundance kid recently and there's that shot at the end that iconic image of the two of them running out of the, the building, firing their pistols. And then the camera just pulls back further and further and further. And they're, they're both these tiny little images by the end of it. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool concept. So that, a little bit of that flavor with Robin Hood. So that you, mm -hmm. you see just a, a tiny fracture, a, a fraction of the scene on the cover and the big picture is much more expansive, so. I'm appreciating how uh, in the discussion of this very, uh you know cinematically done graphic novel uh there's so many great works of film that are playing around in your mind <laughs> oh my gosh everything I... from smoky and the bandit to butch cassidy and the <laughs> dance kid to errol flynn's robin hood to star wars yeah. uh it is and it's such a melting pot um of of great ideas that you're you're picking from there it, it all kind of blends into one if i can kind of you know spaghetti factory it out into a robin hood story then why not mm -hmm. yeah, yeah absolutely before i let you go i want to make sure that we get a little bit of uh practical advice also for backers i'm looking to get this episode out a couple days after uh, our recording right now i think we have uh, 18 days left in the Kickstarter. By the time this comes out, we should have 16 or 15 days left sure. in the Kickstarter. Yeah, the final two weeks, roughly, I think. Yeah, yeah. so we'll get it in uh, when there's two weeks left. So if you're listening to this, when it comes out, you've still got time. There'll be a link in the show description for the Kickstarter. Uh, you could also, you know, go to Kickstarter, search Robin Hood, Legend of Sherwood, search uh, under your name, Jeff Douglas Messer. Should uh, be easy to find. Robin Hood graphic novel, you'll find it. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, look for a couple of different uh, backer level items to be announced in the final two weeks as well. We've got a, a couple of things up our sleeves, a uh, couple of biggies. If, if anybody out there is a big spender, we've got a couple of large ideas that we're going to foist on the world in the final final days. There are a couple of those that are very that you already have up that are pretty exciting. The treasure trove idea that includes... Yes those comics from the 90s that were done yes. by Christopher Schneck's work? Uh, yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got images of those covers up in the Kickstarter. They look beautiful. Uh, I admit I'm very curious about that series. You've got 
Also custom art prints uh, as options, getting uh, included into the story is even a, an option. Yeah, we had uh, the first book, we had a couple of backers who uh, appear on uh, pages of the comic and the, you know, they get the original artwork of those pages sent to them with their likeness as a, in those instances, they were just minor characters blended into the story. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and reveal it is that we've got a couple of major characters that we're going to offer up to backers who want to really be in the story mm -hmm. uh, to have their likeness. And one of them is the uh, the aforementioned, aforementioned sheriff's wife. Hmm. Um, so we also have a couple of good uh, male characters that we are yet to introduce, uh, including Friar Tuck, who is going to be in the, the third volume. So uh, so there's lots of options for all shapes and sizes. How's, how's that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there are a couple out there, although uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure I, I'm wanting to give Friar Tuck away because secretly I'm going to, I told Chris at one point, I said, when we get to Friar Tuck, I want him to look like Mike Grell. <laughs> uh, who, who is very Friar Tuckish now as, as he's uh, gotten into his older, older years. Uh, so, so I, I was like, I'd like to surprise him with that. It might be the end of our friendship, though, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw out there as a suggestion for anybody listening. If you've got a partner or a friend who's really into Robin Hood, you could get that here as a gift for them. Get them drawn into a Robin Hood comic. That'd be cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. I did another Kickstarter uh, recently uh, that's uh, like an 80s spy uh kind of anthology series and i'm incorporating something that was popular in that with the new robin hood book and that is even if you're not in the book you can get yourself drawn your likeness drawn by our artist chris geary as an outlaw or crusader or as you know a member of the sheriff's men or whatever you want uh you you can have your likeness done which i've always thought it was would be a cool thing not like when you go to the theme park and the the character artist is like sit down and i'll draw you you know you with a giant head riding in a tiny car or whatever you know, yeah, yeah. those artists do. But uh, this would be an authentic, like you look like you fit into the story and could even be in the background of the scene at some point in the comic itself. So that, that turned out to be a lot of fun. And I had people in the other project who did that, wanted to be spies or, you know, you know, oh, draw me as like a spy or an assassin or a femme fatale or whatever. And, you know, we had 15 or 16 people who all jumped in going, this is so cool, you know, for like, 125 bucks yeah i'll draw me out you know do that and so it was it was fun and then i got to come up with character names and bios and stuff like that for them so so we've got a little bit of that in this campaign and, and uh, several people have already jumped on onto that having your likeness on the back cover as a character interacting with robin hood because we have to have a piece of art on the back cover uh that's already been taken somebody snagged that one uh, off the campaign so we're trying to come up with some other big ones like that if people are interested yeah, it, it's a unique thing. Uh, you know, Kickstarter can do that where we're kind of custom creating all these projects. So the people who support it can be an even bigger part of it, immortalized, as it were. Yeah, it, it's really fun. Like I said, there's there's many options, lots of different ways to consider getting involved, whether or not all of these fantastic art prints and variant covers and chances to get yourself drawn by the artists appeal to you or not, you can also get in for digital or physical copies of yes. one or both of the books. Yep, yep, absolutely. And if you're if you're on the fence, the digital is the easy way to go. 
I, I'm too old and set in my ways. I can't read digital comics. I have to like hold on, hold on to things, mm-hmm. tactile, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I've encouraged people in the past, uh, if you're worried about shipping, because you know, here's the, the honest truth, shipping, let's say, to Australia now. And there was a point when packages were not even allowed into Australia from the rest of the world during the pandemic. But to, to ship a book with a retail value of $15, uh, roughly what this one is, cost about 30 bucks to ship. That's yeah. insane, but it's the reality of it. And so I, I've encouraged people. It's like, if you look at it and go, I really want this. I really want to support this, but I, God, the shipping, I can't pay 30 bucks for shipping. Uh, and that's a break even amount. You know, that's like us eating it on the packaging <laughs> side of things. Get the digital. I always encourage people get the digital. And at some point we'll put out a collection of everything put together and you can wait and get that or hold up. It'll be in the diamond catalog or whatever for comic shops and and you can go buy it in physical form in your own comic shop but if you want to support it now and read it now digital is the way to go yeah and i appreciated how clear you are about that on the kickstarter page you know there's that advice for international backers you know look at the digital option that's you know the most reasonable option for most of the world um they, and we're looking at you're, you're going to and we're looking, publish it independently, and then in the UK you've got Shift, who's going to be uh, publishing helping us. Yeah, yeah, and and we're looking for that too. And I think a lot of people on Kickstarter are in this mode now where they're looking for people in other countries, be it you know the UK, be it Canada, wherever. That it's easier to package a big box of books and pay a hundred bucks to ship fifty books to someone else across the border, and then they ship them in country for you we're looking for those options as well and i think a lot of folks on kickstarter are starting to do that so there may be solutions for the international buyers uh coming soon it's just it's a slow process at this point mm-hmm. and this won't be their only chance there will be kickstarters exactly. in the future there'll be additional volumes yes. so we'll of course i'll make sure that that people stay aware of these as they come out <laughs> Appreciate that very much. Yes. I, I, we we got to band together this Robin Hood community. Yes, exactly. Uh, if if yeah. the supporters of Robin Hood can't band together, who can? Like that, that seems. Too on yeah, the note. There's no hope for the future. If it, if it can't happen, there's no hope for the future, right? Right. Uh, okay. Well, thanks uh, a lot for joining me for discussing Thank the starter, discussing the process going into the creation of these comics. I'm really excited to to get to see them, and I'm I'm a lot like you. Um, it's going to be real tempting to read the digital copies just to see them right away, but I I also right. love having the physical copies, so I'm going to see if I can make myself wait. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, but uh, you know, I like I said, I support a lot of Kickstarters, and I they'll send me the digitals, and I won't even open the emails. I'm just like, nah, I'll wait. I'll just wait. I I, I just there's an experience of holding the comic and reading the comic that is very important. I, I do want to throw one thing out um, to yeah. any of your listeners, the listeners of this podcast. If when you, if you come and you pledge on the Kickstarter, drop me a note and let me know that you listen to this podcast and anyone who is a listener of your show will get included with whatever level they get a uh, Robin Hood challenge one. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. 
a unique item. We made it for the first Kickstarter. I have uh, I have a number of them left over from then, uh, but they're really cool. They're you know fifty cent piece sized coins or. I am saying that and the international listeners are like, I don't know what size that is. Uh, but anyway, they're really, really kind of fun and cool. And uh, we'll include those, but you have to mention that you heard it here. Yep. Uh, heard it on Into the Greenwood. Uh, there we go. That's uh, fantastic. Thank you. An exclusive for you guys. Yeah. Into the Greenwood exclusive. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Like I said, I'll, I'll make sure I get this edited right away. We want to get it out there while the Kickstarter is still running. I appreciate it. And I appreciate uh, everything you guys are doing. Keep up the good work. We, we all have to keep the spirit of Robin Hood alive out there. And I appreciate what you're doing. You know, it's a lot easier to do when people are putting out brand new stories still for us to enjoy. This is something to talk about, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, it's been wonderful meeting you. It's uh, been a lovely it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, an absolute pleasure, man. Uh, good luck in, you know, anytime down the road. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> Always good to know somebody else out there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great. Yep. Thank you. Good night. Take care. Good night. My thanks again to Jeff Messer for joining me in the Greenwood. If you're listening to this episode within two weeks of its initial release date, then you still have time to get in on the Robin Hood Legend of Sherwood Kickstarter and check out the incredible array of exclusive offers that come with it. If you decide to back the project, don't forget to let Jeff know that you listened to this interview. If you're listening to this sometime after the Kickstarter has ended, then it might be worth following him anyway, as they have more volumes already in the works and will always make sure that the first volumes are available. If you're interested in sharing your thoughts about your favorite comic book adaptation of Robin Hood, your favorite story by Mike Grell, or maybe what heroic or villainous character you'd create for yourself in a Robin Hood tale, then feel free to get in touch via Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, where we use the handle at into Greenwood. If you wouldn't touch social media with a cloth yard shaft, you can also email us directly via indogreenwood at gmail.com. Into the Greenwood is produced and edited by me, Thaddeus Papke. Our theme music is by Plastic 3, and it's brought to you by the generous support of our patrons on patreon.com slash indogreenwood. And today we have a new patron backer to thank. It's none other than Alan Wright who has been mentioned several times before on this podcast, including earlier in this very episode. Thank you so much for your support, Alan, and a very deep, heartfelt thank you for all the fantastic work you've done over the years on your Bold Outlaw website, on social media, and simply all over. If you'd like to join our merry band, you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar an episode by going to patreon.com slash indogreenwood, where you can find backer-exclusive content such as bonus audio and a very special Into the Greenwood t-shirt. All money goes directly to paying for the hosting fees and production costs, except for 10% that we set aside for our select charity, Trees, Water, and People, which is a top-rated foundation 
that implement sustainable solutions for providing clean water and food to impoverished communities around the world. If you have not the alms with which to support this small podcast, you would also be doing us an immense help by leaving positive ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you listen to us. Into the Greenwood is really lacking in reviews, which means that Podfinder algorithms will not recommend us to potential new listeners. And of course, recommending the podcast yourself to others would mean a lot as well. Into the Greenwood is completely independent and ad-free, but we do need some assistance to stay that way. That's all for now, though. So once again, I find myself wishing safe travels to you, one and all, until our next journey together into the Greenwood.